0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. 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 (laughs) Hello out there. (laughs) What a great crowd we have here this morning. Hey, Sandy. How are you? (laughs) It's good to see so many out um, on this beautiful fall morning. Um, It's the end of October. It's gone, just like that. Wow! I'm Althea Brooks and I'm Director of Lifetime Learning in the Office of Engagement. And it is indeed my pleasure to welcome you here today. This is our fifth More Than a Score lecture this season. Um, each has just been fantastic. Anybody else agree? Yeah. Well, this morning we have a rock star. Barbara Perry from the Miller Center. This is Barbara's third time speaking with us. Um, when, when was your first talk? 2012? And then 13, and then we've got her back again in 16. So please help me welcome Barbara in advance of being introdu- introduced. Make her feel really welcome. And she really is a rock star. You will love her, I promise. Um, Also, we have the bookstore here today. Uh, They'll be selling uh, Barbara's book, so feel free to pick up a copy or two. (laughs) They make great Christmas gifts. I promise that as well. Uh, Why don't you go ahead and silence the ringer on your phones. Go ahead and turn it off for an hour and engage in this great talk. Also, the orange feedback cards we passed out. We'd love to have your feedback. We're recording today's lecture. We're recording it um, audio recording for a podcast. They'll be made available for you in a day or two. We're also video recording this talk. So we ask that you wait um, for the microphone to get, get to you when uh, question and answer uh, period comes up at the end. I'm going to turn things over to Cindy Frederick. She's going to be introducing our speaker the, this morning. Cindy is the Associate Vice President in the Office of Engagement, and she is my direct report. Um, You will love her as well, I promise. Anyway, thank you for being here today. Today, welcome. Thanks, Althea.
1: And indeed, it is a wonderful morning in Charlottesville today, and it's my pleasure to introduce Barbara Perry, who is a US Supreme Court and presidential expert and currently serves as the White Burkett Professor of Ethics and Institutions at UVA's Miller Center. In addition, she is also Director of Presidential Studies, co-chair of the Presidential Oral History Program, and Project Director of the Edward Kennedy Oral History Project. Wow, a lot of activity at the Miller Center. Among Ms. Perry's 13 authored or edited books are Rose Kennedy, The Life and Times of a Political Matriarch, Inside the Presidency of Bill Clinton, Inside the Presidency of George Bush, and The Supremes, an introduction to the United States Supreme Court Justices. (laughs) The author of more than 35 articles and book chapters, Barbara has lectured throughout the United States. She is a recipient of numerous awards, including the 2013 Silver Good Citizen Medal for her outstanding achievements in the study, writing, and teaching of American history, awarded by the Virginia Society of the Sons of the Re- American Revolution. A native of Louisville, Kentucky, Miss Perry earned a PhD in government from the University of Virginia, an MA from Oxford University, and a BA from the University of Louisville, where she was named the 2014 Alumni Fellow of the Year. I'd also like to extend a very warm welcome to our colleagues from the University of Louisville. We have the Dean of Arts and Sciences. I'm from the college and the Director of Development. So welcome to our folks in red. Give them a Wahoo welcome. And I won't even put Barbara on the spot to see who she's rooting for today. But anyway, please join me in welcoming Barbara Perry to More Than the Score.
2: You, Cindy, that was so nice. Well, thank you so much, Cindy, for that very, very fulsome welcome uh, to our visitors, of course, and introduction of me. I so appreciate it. I I always say to Althea, uh, one of my favorite people on grounds, that uh, she's the only person who can get me out of bed early on a Saturday morning uh, and come to speak, but it's always on my favorite topics to my favorite people, uh, University of Virginia alums and their guests. So thank you for being here today. Uh, I didn't realize when I picked this topic uh, some many months ago just how important it would be uh, because as we are now 10 days away from the election, uh, there will be still a vacancy uh, on the United States Supreme Court uh, and uh, it is the the case that the next president will have the opportunity, if perhaps not the actual experience of uh, filling that seat that was held by Justice Scalia. (laughs) Make sure I've got my topics here. So what we're going to do today is um, talk about this seat within the context of Justice Scalia himself uh, because it is that seat that is to be filled. Uh, As some of you may know, he was uh, an alum of the University of Virginia Law School in the sense that he was a professor there in the early part of his career, in the late 60s and early 70s, and we did have him here frequently to speak, particularly at the law school. But I wanted to talk today about uh, some of the lessons of his own appointment way back in 1986, uh, some of his jurisprudence, which in some ways was controversial, uh, and continues to be because whichever person is going to go into that seat uh, will either have those similar views if it is a Republican president filling that seat, uh, or if it's a Democrat who attempts to fill that seat, uh, she will have to deal with uh, the legacy of Justice Scalia. Uh, We also want to talk a little bit about uh, his larger-than-life presence on the court and within its jurisprudence. And then talk about replacing him. That's what we're here to talk about today, again, to give some context and, and historical lessons. The Miller Center, as probably many of you know because I recognize your faces, you come often to our programs and we welcome you to those forums. If you don't have a chance to come to them, they're broadcast on almost 300 PBS stations across the country now as the American Forum from the Miller Center. Uh, but the, the fact of the matter is we are nonpartisan and our goal is to try to offer the lessons of history to help us to understand the complexities of American politics and particularly the complexities in my case of the presidency and the court. Uh, there was an unexpected vacancy that developed uh, on the on the court uh, on February 13th of this year. You may recall it was a Saturday. I was doing what I do every Saturday evening. Uh, In February, I was watching college basketball, (laughs) and I began flipping around during commercials, and I flipped through CNN, and there was a crawler that I found quite shocking. Uh, It said the announcement that uh, Justice Scalia had passed away while on a hunting trip uh, in Texas. Uh, I had known the Justice for all of his 30 years uh, on the bench. Uh, He was here long before I arrived to do my Ph.D., Uh, But I had gotten to know him because my dissertation that I did here with a renowned professor in the government department, uh, Henry Abraham, some of you may know Henry or maybe even was was taught by Henry. Uh, He knew many of the justices uh, in his long career. Henry, by the way, if you did have him, you should know he is still here in Charlottesville at the age of 95 and just taught in the OLLI program. So he just did an adult education course on the court. Uh, But uh, Justice Scalia uh, had very, very graciously let me interview him with my newly minted Ph.D. in hand in 1987. He said, sure, come on up to my chambers at the court. Um, I had done a chapter in my dissertation on Catholic justices and I wanted to talk to him about his Catholicism and his appointment that previous year to the court. So I had known him off and on all through those 30 years, and in fact, I had had lunch with him at his chambers and with Professor Abraham uh, just about uh, a year and a half before he passed. So uh, while he was approaching 80, uh, and we didn't realize that he had some heart and circulatory issues, uh, he always was so larger than life and seemed to be so robust that it was uh, pretty hard to accept that he had passed on. Uh, But it did open up this seat, and as you know, we therefore only have now eight justices out of the full complement of nine. But how did Justice Scalia get to the court in 1986? He got there in a very interesting way. Uh, I also have to say it caused me nightmares uh, when uh, the seat opened up that he took eventually because I was writing my dissertation at the time on appointments to the Supreme Court and I had just put the final period on the final page and was getting ready to defend it here at the university in the rotunda and the word came down that Chief Justice Berger was resigning to go head up the Bicentennial Commission and not only did that open up the chief justice seat, but then President Reagan decided to promote Associate Justice Rehnquist up to the chief's chair, which then opened the associate chair, which Scalia ultimately took. But I literally had nightmares where I would wake up in a cold sweat, and one of the nightmares was in the court building, the bench had collapsed into the basement and all nine justices had been killed. And now we were going to have to fill all nine seats on the court, and I would have to add a chapter to my dissertation. So as you can see where my mind was, it was not not a pleasant point. But that's how Justice Scalia came to the bench in 1986. Uh, What were Reagan's criteria? Uh, for placing uh, members on the bench. He specifically wanted younger justices. He wanted to place people on the court who were under age 55 uh, because he wanted them to be there a long time and he certainly got his wish uh, with Justice Scalia who served almost 30 years uh, on the High Court. Uh, He wanted people who had been judges previously and Justice Scalia had been on the DC Circuit so he'd been a Court of Appeals judge for several years uh, and the reason Reagan wanted this was he was very aware and those who helped him to make these choices, those in the Justice Department, uh, his Attorney General, Ed Meese, uh, many of the conservatives around him said, look, let's look back at Eisenhower. Eisenhower was asked, uh, this may be apocryphal, but we tell the story, but it's such a good one. When Eisenhower was leaving Washington, finishing up his second term in office as John Kennedy came on board in 1961, the press said to President Eisenhower, Did you make any mistakes, sir, while you were president? And he thought for a minute and he said, Well, I I don't know, maybe not. And they said, any real bad mistakes? And he said, well, yes, I can think of two now that you really press me. And they're both sitting on the Supreme Court. Uh, And one was Earl Warren and one was Bill Brennan. And he had thought that they were conservatives, but they ended up being, as you know, the core of the liberal Warren Court uh, all through the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. And for Justice Brennan served up until the early 1990s uh, when ill health forced him off. So Reagan was very much aware of that, and he wanted to put people on the court, preferably judges who had a track record. He didn't want any of these stealth nominees or somebody who might leave the conservative reservation once getting to the court. So that's how Scalia certainly came to the court. He had already as a professor here at UVA, a professor at the University of Chicago, a judge on the D.C. Circuit, he had already written articles at the University of Chicago. He had been the academic advisor to the Federalist Society as it started in the 1980s, a conservative sort of academic think tank group of law professors and law students. So he had all the right credentials. Now, as I say, I went up to speak to him in 1987 because I wanted to know about his religion. Uh, And you might ask, well, what does that have to do with anything? Why should we pay any attention to somebody's religion? I thought we had separation of church and state. But the fact of the matter is that uh, presidents over the years have have looked at the religion of those they are going to put on the court because they want to represent, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later, they want to represent uh, various religions within the populace to make people in the populace look to the court and say, oh, I see a person from my state or my region or my religion or my ethnicity or my race or my gender. So this was something that we thought might have had a role in Scalia's choice. He would be the second Catholic on the court at that time added to Bill Brennan. But Bill Brennan was in the later years of of his career on the bench. And so probably the the Reagan administration was thinking he's going to be leaving and there's been a Catholic seat on the court going back into the 1800s. So he sort of, Scalia kind of fit the bill in that sense. Uh, The other was there had never been an Italian-American, on the bench. And so when I went to speak to Justice Scalia, he talked about that a little bit. He was very proud of his Italian American heritage. Uh, His parents were Uh, uh, immigrants to the United States, and so he was very proud of that, and he said he would receive floods and floods of letters from fellow Italian Americans around the country who would say, we're so proud of you because, let's face it, there was a stereotype of Italian Americans related to the mafioso, and they were really happy that finally someone got all the way to the highest court in the land that protects our law. Uh, By education and experience, we've talked about his experience, but by education he was superb. Uh, He had always been at the top of his class, whether it was his public school in uh, in, uh, New York City. Uh, He then went to a military, a Catholic military academy where he was the valedictorian. He went to Georgetown undergraduate where he was valedictorian, then on to Harvard Law School uh, where he graduated magna cum laude and was on the Harvard Law Review. So you can't get any better credentials than that. Um, We'll talk a little bit more about his ideology, but the Senate politics at that time, in 1986, the Senate was in Republican hands. Uh, You might recall that it flipped from Democratic to Republican hands in the 1980 election. As Reagan swept in, uh, uh, really crushing the Democratic ticket in 1980, uh, the Republicans took over majority control of the Senate. So this was very helpful uh, for Reagan to fill these two seats. Most of the venom among the Democrats at that time in the minority in the Senate went towards the promotion of Rehnquist from associate to chief. Uh, There was quite a battle uh, over it, you might recall, but Rehnquist made it, he was confirmed uh, by the Senate and was placed in the chief's chair. It was almost as if all the venom and all the attention, negative particularly, that had gone towards Rehnquist sort of drained out the venom in the system at that point. And so Justice Scalia was uh, approved 98 to nothing by the Senate in the summer of 1986 and took his seat on the bench at that time. So the Senate politics was at that time very much in favor of, of Reagan. Now this is the ideology and the jurisprudence or the legal philosophy of Justice Scalia. Um, He was said to be, and very proud to be, uh, an originalist. And I'm sure you've heard of that concept of original intent. What was the original intent of the framers of the U.S. Constitution? This was, by the way, the topic he chose to speak on when he came to the law school in in 2010 to speak uh, in honor of Professor Abraham. Uh, That's what he wanted to talk about, was originalism. And the the topic is, is one that's actually fairly easy to understand, I think, and explain. When one talks about the original intent of the framers of the Constitution, the view is that when the framers met in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787 to create a new Constitution as our Articles of Confederation were failing, uh, they had certain ideas and certain principles that they wanted to place into the Constitution. And Justice Scalia's view was that we should follow those to the extent we could understand what those intentions were. Mr. Madison took notes uh, at the convention, and he is viewed as the father of the Constitution. Uh, We know that there were the Federalist Papers that were written by Madison, Hamilton, and Jay to give us an idea of what the founders thought. So Scalia's view was uh, whether it's the Constitution or a law, we should know, and we probably do know, what the uh, intentions were of those who framed those laws or that Constitution. And his view was then that the Constitution couldn't be changed by the fiat of justices on the Supreme Court. And he would say, um, I don't believe in a living Constitution. This is what Justice Brennan believed in. Justice Brennan believed that the justices on the Court should read a public opinion poll and decide how the law should be uh, fashioned at that point. And that was not Scalia's view. He would joke, I believe in a dead constitution. (laughs) If If it is to be changed, it's to be changed by how the framers intended it to be changed, which is by constitutional amendment. So that's the concept of originalism. Textualism is closely related to that, because his view was the intent of the framers was easy to determine because they wrote in the English language, and they were very careful crafters of the English language. Now, many people believe that Scalia had this view because his father was a professor of modern languages uh, at uh, Brooklyn College uh, in New York, and that his father believed in reading the text of modern languages in their original language. So don't don't read the English translation, but but learn your languages that you need to. And obviously the family knew Italian, so uh, his father specifically specialized in that. And Scalia, we think, took this on even as a young boy, that he thought it was important that words have meaning and that that meaning is pretty clear when you combine it with the intent of those who use the word. So that's the concept then of textualism. What's his impact then and across those 30 years, if you take this uh, understanding that he had of originalism and textualism and then start applying it to all of the important elements that come to the court, you can get a sense of where he stood uh, on uh, on law and how the law was interpreted by the Supreme Court. But before we even get to that kind of impact, uh, I can say, having watched the court, Um, for these 30-some-odd years since I was a graduate student here. That was one of the reasons I took Professor Abrams' class. He would always take a field trip. He'd take his graduate students to the court uh, every semester, and and because he knew members of the court, we'd always get seats at oral argument, and we'd then go behind the scenes to their chambers and meet one of the justices. Um, So Scalia, always in oral argument, would have this larger-than-life impact on the oral argument. He was a great comic. Uh, and so he would often leaven these very serious conversations with, uh, with a little bit of humor. And, and he would, but he would be very serious and press the counsel arguing before the court uh, to try to get to the heart of the matter. Uh, but when he would leaven it with humor, he'd say something like, what, what, is, what are you saying in your, in your brief before us? I'm not sure I understand it. Tell me what you mean. And, and you'd see these people who were pretty good counsel, pretty good at t- They'd start going through their brief trying to figure out the answer to his question. And one time he said, well, when you find it, yell bingo. Uh, and with that, the the crowd in the courtroom about holds about this many people burst into laughter like that. So I always appreciated, I, but then again, I never had to argue before him, so I'm sure I wouldn't have appreciated if, if that had been the case. But he was also the intellectual leader of the conservatives on the court because he had this strong academic background, because he had this fairly easily comprehensible notion of originalism and textualism, and had been an academic himself, had been a scholar of the law, he was truly the leader of the conservatives on the bench. Uh, so that's, that's going to be very hard to replace, whether it's a conservative or liberal who goes in that seat. But let's talk just, to, just briefly about um, how he would have an impact on opinions that the court handed down. When it came to presidential power, he was very concerned about the separation of powers. He thought the president had powers given to him uh, in the Constitution and those powers should be protected. So he was very protective of the chief executive and didn't want encroachment from the Congress on the powers of the president. When it came to separation of powers, that's how he was able to interpret that and say there are powers given in Article I to the Congress in the Constitution, there are powers given to the President in Article II, and there are powers given to the courts in Article III, and and rarely should the twain uh, meet. In federalism, because the founders separated our powers between national government and state governments, he was very protective of that line. Uh, so if the Congress would impose a mandate on states that he thought was unconstitutional, he never hesitated to say so. Uh, property rights, uh, is, is they, those are viewed as a more conservative approach to interpreting the Constitution. So for example, if a case would come to the court where it seemed that environmental rights were in conflict with property rights, he would go for property rights. Uh, If a conflict seemed to come to the court where property rights and perhaps individual civil rights were at issue, he would tend to focus on the property rights. I think if you know Justice Scalia, you know that gun rights were paramount to him, that he was a hunter. Uh, Once while having lunch with him in his chambers, I looked up and there was a giant, I think it was an antelope, I don't don't know my western animals very well, but it was a giant head of some deceased animal that was hanging (laughs) from his wall. And I said, Justice Scalia, what is that? And I think he said, it's an antelope. And I said, did you shoot that animal? And he said, well, yes. He said, you don't think I'd have an animal head hanging in my chambers if I hadn't killed it? So I said, oh, okay, yes, sir, I understand that. So gun rights, Second Amendment, very, very powerful in his mind. Criminal rights, very interesting. Usually conservatives on criminal rights are for the government. They're for law rather than the individual or the criminal. And usually this was the case for him. So, for example, on the death penalty, he was pro-death penalty. But there there are several cases in which he would say, yes, but the law enforcement people overstepped their bounds, particularly in Fourth Amendment search and seizure. So my favorite of these cases is, is one in which law enforcement had been attempting to find, this was in one of the northwestern states, they'd been attempting to find people growing marijuana in their homes. And they were using heat-detecting devices. And they'd drive up and down streets and point heat detectors at houses. And if they got a reading, they would think, oh, you know, this could be somebody growing marijuana in the house under artificial lights. And Justice Scalia then defended and wrote for the person who had been charged with this crime of growing marijuana because he said, that's an unreasonable search and seizure. That's just wrong for the law enforcement to drive around with a heat detecting device. And I used to tease my students when I'd teach this. I'd say, it would be my luck. I'd come out of a hot shower and be drying my hair. And I, you know, they, I would be you know, knock on the door, the police, we're coming in. We think you're growing marijuana in there. And I'd say, no, no, I just dried my hair. But this is kind of the commonsensical vision that, that Justice Fiscally ahead of the rights. In civil rights, uh, one of the areas that just flashes out at us is affirmative action. He was consistently against affirmative action. His view was that uh, a student or an employee, potential employee, no one should be judged based on race or gender. Uh, that those were to be not used in any kind of decision-making because of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. So he fought tooth and nail against any of the court decisions that were pro-affirmative action. In abortion, you won't be surprised to know, given his Catholicism, uh, that he was completely consistent on that. He was pro-life and would never support any of the decisions coming to the court in which the court would support rights or access to abortion. uh, he um, He would say, it's not my Catholicism. I just can't find in the Constitution or the intention of the framers any concept that there should be either a right of privacy that was used to develop a right to abortion. I once saw a fascinating discussion he had with the Italian ambassador to the United States who asked him that direct question. Sir, isn't it the case because you're a Catholic that you're uh, against abortion? And he said, no, it's not. He said, it's because of the way I read the Constitution. Well, I leave it up to you to decide whether that may be the case or not, but that's how he expressed it. In terms of religion, which is obviously an interesting area for him because of his staunch conservative Catholicism. By the way, he and his wife, Mrs. Scalia, had nine children, and I think, at last count, 35 grandchildren. Uh, his, one of his sons uh, is a Catholic priest and uh, held the, the funeral mass for his dad at the Shrine of the Immaculate Conception at Catholic University. Um, so Justice Scalia's view about uh, religion was not the Bill Brennan view, not, by the way, the Thomas Jefferson or the Madison view of separation of church and state, To Scalia, he believed in accommodation, that the government should accommodate religion because of the other clause in the First Amendment of free exercise of religion. So just about any case that would come to the court, he would be on the side of religion. One interesting exception, Native Americans out in the state of Oregon would use and ingest peyote as part of their liturgy. Peyote, a hallucinogenic substance, on the controlled substances list in the state of Oregon. And so when that case came to the court, Justice Scalia wrote the decision, not accommodating that free exercise of religion, but saying this, that it was a secular rule that Oregon had put peyote on the controlled substances list. And because of that, it applied across the board to everybody, no matter what religion. It wasn't directly aimed at Native Americans or their liturgy. Because of that decision that he wrote, The Congress passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act that had two strange bedfellows supporting it, Ted Kennedy and Orrin Hatch, a Catholic and a Mormon. So sometimes Justice Scalia's views would would really prompt the Congress to act. Um, Freedom of expression, um, pretty much in in the realm of of what the the First Amendment says, the right to freedom of speech, the right to freedom of the press, Uh, he even sided with those who would burn an American flag uh, as a protest back in the 1980s. And he would joke that it was hard for him because he so believed in our country and, and supported the flag as its symbol. And he said, But I just, I thought that that was freedom of expression. I had to go with that. And he said, So I came down to breakfast the next morning and my wife is whistling, It's a grand old flag, just to make me feel <laughs> bad. Um, on equal protection, um, on gender, we've just mentioned about abortion. Um, In the gender realm, um, he certainly was, you know, not against women, but he was not in favor necessarily of expanding uh, some rights that would relate to women. Um, But in the realm of gay marriage, also the same, very much against that concept, couldn't find a way for the Constitution to support gay marriage. So he went to his uh, demise believing that the court had ruled in error uh, in the recent case that uh, upheld Uh, marriage equality. And finally, in Bush v. Gore, we we could go on for years talking about his role on the court, but in Bush v. Gore, he sided with the majority to stop the count, the recount in Florida uh, in 2000 uh, and that ultimately allowed then uh, George W. Bush to become President of the United States and until he passed Justice Scalia would be out on the stump talking about this case and somebody would raise a hand, what about Bush v. Gore? And he'd explain what the case did and then he'd say, get over it. There, it's done. It's done. Now, this we don't get a chance often to quote Gerald Ford, so I always like to pop this in. And, and he did say something particularly important about uh, Supreme Court appointees. And, and they are, you can see from just that fairly uh, short list of the impact that Justice uh, Scalia had, how important these appointments are. Uh, and I think that's why we have almost 300 people here today who are thinking 10 days from now, or perhaps you've already voted early, this is gonna have an impact on who gets on the court and who's going to have the ninth seat and is going to perhaps break ties when the cases that come to the court that are you know, fairly evenly divided, four and four, four conservatives, four liberals, this is gonna be important. So uh, President Ford was right on in saying that. Um, what does it mean for court decisions we can actually just look at the lineup on the court and see the impact that this uh, vacancy has. I've lined up the liberals at the bottom here with, from left to right, Justice Ginsburg, Justice Breyer, Justice Sotomayor, and Justice Kagan. Um, At the top, the conservatives who remain on the bench, the Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Thomas, and Justice Alito. And the reason I put Justice Kennedy in the middle is that he does tend to be the swing vote when the court on issues that tend to divide along liberal or conservative lines get the court divided four to four, or now perhaps four to three. So you might have paid some attention to the court's last term. Uh, There were few cases, not a lot. Uh, The court now hears between 60 and 70 cases and decides in full every term, uh, which is a pretty low number. They've actually been taking fewer cases over the years. Uh, But even so, if you know if the court is taking a case, it's darn important. Uh, It's risen all the way up to them. They have to make the final decision on it. And again, just looking at those areas that we talked about for Justice Scalia's impact, these impact people where they live oftentimes. Uh, It impacts the basic decisions that people make, or it has an impact on business decisions uh, that businesses take. So you might have t- paid attention. At the very end of last term, there was a four to four split on the court on an immigration issue. Uh, president Obama, because he could not fashion a grand bargain on immigration with the Congress, um, particularly a Congress that is of the opposite party from the president, uh, decided to take a unilateral executive action. And he simply implemented a couple of executive orders involving immigration. Uh, first to allow children. um, uh, People had come to this country perhaps illegally, but if the children uh, had come with them, he wanted to make it easier for them to have a road to citizenship. Uh, That still stands, but he then sort of reversed it in the second executive order so that the parents of children who are citizens of the United States but their parents aren't, try to get some path to citizenship for them. Uh, About 26 states with Republican governors brought suit against the president's executive order if you will saying that the president had exceeded his executive power and that case went all the way to the Supreme Court after the uh, circuit the 5th circuit in Texas had enjoined it and said this cannot be implemented and that's where it stood got all the way to the Supreme Court and it was one of those issues where the courts divided between liberals and conservatives, they ended up with Justice Kennedy siding on the conservative side, so you had a 4-4 split. What happens when the court has a 4-4 split? It doesn't decide the case. The decision of the lower court stands, and so in this instance, the, um, the issue was for the Fifth Circuit stay to remain in place, which meant that that executive order does not become active, uh, the Obama administration tried to bring a, the, uh, the case back to the court and say, well, it on the merits, not just the procedure, and that failed. So President Obama will leave office then with that uh, pushed aside. But when the court decides four to four and just simply leaves in place the lower court ruling, it doesn't set any kind of um, precedent. Thank you. It sets no precedent for the country. This means that in these very important areas, by having a vacancy on the bench, you're leaving the law uh, less than uniform across the country. So very, very important then uh, to get that seat filled in the minds of most people. I just put the names of the current eight justices up for you to peruse to see how important and how long-lasting these decisions are. Note that Justice Kennedy Uh, is the last remaining Reagan appointee, but President Reagan died in 2004, and here Justice Kennedy remains on the bench. So oftentimes these decisions made by presidents have long-lasting impacts uh, on the court and therefore on the law and on us and how we live our lives. But you get a sense of when they were appointed, by which presidents, what their current age is, and as you will see, we have a, a graying court, as it is called. And this, we go through cycles on this. I was a, a, a Supreme Court fellow in the mid-1990s. I served a year at the court, uh, helping the Chief Justice on research and drafting speeches, uh, also bringing in visiting dignitaries to tell them about the court. Um, it was a fantastic year, as you can imagine. And I remember at the time, the average age of the justices was 70. When we had a spate of new justices uh, over the last few years, that average dropped to 60. But time and tide wait for no man or woman, so they continue to age. And again, we're we're up to now an average age of 70. Uh, You'll see that three or four of them are past the usual retirement age of 65. And this is a, a topic we often hear in presidential elections, even without a vacancy on the bench, Look at the ages of the justices, because we could have for the next president two or three vacancies, in addition to the Scalia vacancy. Uh, The eldest justice currently is Justice Ginsburg, who is 83. Uh, She has had two bouts with cancer. Uh, but she holds on uh, somewhat controversially of late with some statements she's been making. Um, She says that she will remain until she feels she can no longer do the job. There is no retirement age for a justice. The only way to remove a justice is through uh, impeachment and conviction by the Senate. Uh, much as it is for the president. I do list the, uh, the religious affiliation because it's an, an, an old issue for me, again, going back to my dissertation. Uh, the fact that there has not been a Protestant on the bench now since Justice Stevens left, and occasionally uh, people will say, well, how can that be? That you know, the Protestantism is still the majority denomination, if you will, in the United States uh, society, and uh, usually what Professor Abraham says to that is, Uh, you can imagine, with the name of Abraham, he is Jewish, uh, he would say, well, you had your chance. (laughs) He'd say, I know it's all Catholics and Jewish justices now, but uh, three quarters of those who've been on the court were not Catholics and were not Jews. Uh, You know, the next question will be, when will we get uh, someone outside those three main religions now? Uh, And there was a possibility for a circuit court judge in D.C., Sri Srinivasan, was being considered Uh, by President Obama and if he had been chosen and actually seated on the bench, he would have been the first Hindu uh, justice. So we shall see where that goes. Um, we've talked a little bit about the founders and, and what they thought about the Constitution and how this had such an impact on Justice Scalia, but it's also important I think to look back at what they thought about appointments. Because they did consider this very carefully in Philadelphia. How should we populate the Supreme Court? How should we make appointments? And so their first thought was, well, well let's just have the Congress do it. So they'd already created a concept of a Congress with a House and a Senate. So they said, well let's just let the Congress appoint members of the Supreme Court and any lower courts that they should create. But then some members of the Constitutional Convention said, I don't know. Uh, the Congress, that it, it would be, do they know? Do they really understand what should be on the Supreme Court in terms of qualifications? And they also said, there's an awful lot of intrigue that goes on in, in legislature, so maybe that wouldn't be the best place to, to place uh, the appointment power. So then they said, well, we've created now a president. We've created an executive. Perhaps it should be the president, who solely appoints members of of the federal bench, and particularly the Supreme Court. And then they said, no, that's too monarchical. We can't just have one person in charge of populating the Supreme Court. So as it was very typical of the men sitting in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787, they came to a compromise. They said, let's go with the higher house, that is the Senate over the House of Representatives, that's the upper house, that one is more prestigious than the House of Representatives, and there will be two senators from each state, so each state will be represented. Let's say that the president will have the power to nominate, but with the advice and consent of the Senate, appoint members of the Supreme Court. That was the compromise that they came to in 1787 and that's where we stand today. Um, Now, I'm going to turn to you to say, if you had the opportunity to sit in this Oval Office and you had to place a member on the bench, what criteria would you use? This is now the audience participation part of our program. <laughs> so now you're, you're flashing back to your student days here. What, what would you do? Gene Ecton. Oh, me. Oh, I did not plant that. Gene Ecton wants me to be on the Supreme Court. Um, I had never thought about that. Okay, I love my job at the Miller Center, but this could be a way to end my career. Thank you, Gene. Here's the thing. I'm not a lawyer. I'm a PhD in political science. Thank you. Not, doesn't matter. There There are no qualifications. There are no qualifications listed in the Constitution or in the law. It is a fact that all members of the court, and there have been 112, have been lawyers. So if Jean Acton gets her wish and I go to the Supreme Court, um, I would be the first (laughs) non-lawyer. Thank you. Others, do we want to ship our... Yes.
0: Why is there not a requirement for so many positions need to be filled, and absent that, we're getting into a territory of dereliction of duty.
2: Uh, are you referring, isn't this the are,
0: opposite of FDR and court packing? We have court unpacking. retrenching?
2: <laughs> we have court unpacking. Yeah, so is your question, uh, why do we allow for a vacancy to last so long? Why are we not filling these positions?
0: Why isn't it that there needs to be so many X number of positions, assumedly um, an then. odd number...
2: Yeah. on you, the bench
0: and to say, not that it couldn't function at less than that, right. but there would either be a you know, time limit or some degree of, or I assume the directives are called for, and why would dereliction of duty not kick in on the Senate?
2: Uh, no such concept in the Constitution, so we're, that's where we are. But I like that idea that there should be some sort of time limit to come kind of up to a full complement. Since you raised that question about the fact that we are without uh, a seat filled and therefore we are in this difficult area of eight justices prone to ties, although there, there weren't that many last year, out of their full complement of cases there were maybe a handful that tied. Um, but that is an issue. Um, there's also nothing in the Constitution that says we have to have nine justices. Uh, they, and the Congress determines how many sit on the bench. It has been, per Congress, nine since 1869. But there have been as few as six, another potential for tie, and as many as 10, another potential for tie. So back to criteria. We had some hands, I think, back here. Oh, Althea, yes.
1: Actually, my criteria would be more diversity of where they came from. I'd like to see a non-Harvard Law
2: School Supreme Justice. <laughs> How about a UVA law person? Yeah, uh, more diversity. A lot of people say that. We have got an all-Ivy League court right now, uh, both undergraduate and and law uh, degrees. So more diversity in education, maybe more diversity uh, from where they hail in the country. So we have uh, mostly Eastern. Uh, We had with Justice Scalia three New Yorkers. He liked to point out, though, they were from three different boroughs in New York.
0: That one right here?
2: Uh, I would uh,
0: endorse uh, President Reagan's um, search for somebody who already serves on the federal bench, either at the uh, uh, the appeals court level or the district court level.
2: Yeah, that was that was we said why Reagan had that view. Um, you would be happy to know that, of course, all the justices currently uh, are, are all former federal appeals court judges, with the exception of Justice Kagan. Um, And we haven't had somebody uh, who's not been on the appeals court, except for Kagan, someone who's been on a state court um, really since Souter and uh, Justice O'Connor. You know, had no federal court experience. Souter did have brief federal court experience. Uh, But people like Justice O'Connor in the main because, uh, first of all, she was the first woman adding some gender diversity. She was from Arizona, uh, was a cowgirl, a very proud cowgirl, grew up on a ranch, a big cattle ranch in Arizona. But she'd also been a politician. She actually was the first uh, Senate majority leader, first woman Senate majority leader in the country. So she had a real knack for the politics of the court and uh, also played that swing seat role to the hilt uh, by finding the middle ground, uh, where, by the way, most Americans are. Most Americans are moderate in their views. And so she really tapped into that, uh, and many people admire her for that. Uh, Others, yes?
1: I would add the qualification that the person have great mediation skills with the ability to see both sides of the question.
2: Wouldn't you like that? And and I think we can be proud that the justices we've had are are highly skilled and very well educated and you can be sure they do see both sides. And I have to say in having witnessed probably a hundred oral arguments over the years that they are truly amazing uh, at their level of intellect and how they are able to ask these complex questions. So I think they do see both sides but as always in anyone who goes into government or becomes a judge, he or she might have a particular view of the law that he or she holds dear. So it's been the case for many years. And some of you might remember Justice Lewis Powell uh, of Virginia, who was a swing voter in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, he was was very much in, the, in that middle crowd, the, the compromiser between the two sides. So I can say throughout a lot of the court's uh, history that it's had some people on one extreme or the other in terms of liberalness or conservatism, but we've also, thank goodness, had, you called it a mediator, I would call it a statesperson, who could find the middle ground sometimes between the extremes. So let me go on to tell you what presidents have actually used. We talked about Reagan and what his criteria were. This is a summary of of looking back at all of the appointments of of all presidents across our, our history to see that, thank goodness, they have usually put merit at the top of the list. You wouldn't want somebody who was less than meritorious to be on the highest court in the land. That's why they tend to come from these top five law schools uh, and have been top of their class in usually top undergraduate institutions. Uh, So either by virtue of intellect and education, how they write, their judicial temperament. I think when we're getting to mediator, we're thinking in terms of uh, as justice Chief Justice Roberts said at his his hearings in front of the Senate, he said, I see a judge as being an umpire. Here we are in the midst of the World Series. Umpires should not come out wearing the uniform of one of the two teams on the field and call the balls and strikes accordingly. Should be neutral, be a neutral arbiter. So judicial temperament refers to that. Obviously they should have great craftsmanship in their use of language uh, and have tremendous integrity and, and work hard. Uh, In the political and ideological realm, it's just human nature that presidents are going to tend to put people on the bench with whom they agree in terms of ideology uh, and approach to the law. That doesn't necessarily mean the person is a partisan or even belongs to the president's political party, uh, but they're probably going to put somebody on who agrees with them, and you might do the same. I would understand that. We've talked about the representational factor that presidents, mostly for political reasons, but also to give the court legitimacy, to let people from all parts of the country, from the different genders, from the different ethnicities, from the different religions and backgrounds, look to the court and see one of themselves on the bench. The reason I put representation, though, in quotes is that's a symbolic representation. We don't mean representation on the bench as you would think of it in Congress, where someone says, I will represent you and your views when I get to Congress. I will vote the way you want me to vote when I get to Congress. That's not what presidents necessarily were thinking about, although when it came to race with someone like Thurgood Marshall, for example, Lyndon Johnson knew exactly what he was doing when he put the first African American on the bench in 1967 because Thurgood Marshall had been the pioneer of the modern civil rights movement, particularly in the law. Uh, And finally, it has not been the case that presidents would ignore personal and political friendships, so occasionally they have put people on the bench they knew previously. Uh, Justice Kagan, for example, had served at the University of Chicago Law School uh, with uh, President Obama when he was a professor there. Uh, President Kennedy appointed his friend Byron White uh, to the bench. They had served in the South Pacific uh, in the Navy together during World War II and they had known each other in pre-war London uh, when Wizard White, uh, a former uh, football player, was a Rhodes Scholar and Kennedy was there when his dad was uh, the ambassador to the court of St. James. So that has been less important of late but presidents have looked to that. Now, why is it as we are in this year of of an election and that Justice Scalia um, Didn't realize, I'm sure, what he was doing as he passed on, but he was going to leave us in the midst of a presidential election. And I remember that very evening that commentators on television began to talk about, oh my gosh, we have a vacancy on the bench and we have a presidential election coming along. Uh, That was on that weekend of February 13th, that Monday That snowed here in Charlottesville. It was a snow day. So I sat home in my jammies and I counted up all of the presidents who had put somebody on the court in a presidential election year. And I came up with the figure that you will see here, that a third of our presidents, 14, had placed a member on the court in the midst of an election year. And that constitutes about 20 uh, justices out of the 112. Um, I I then published that in the Washington Post in an op-ed piece to give, again, as the Miller Center likes to do, to give the historical context of this. Uh, And it was picked up by both the White House and a member of the Senate. So a member of the Senate stood up and said, a University of Virginia professor has noted that, and I said, ooh, I'm on the the Senate floor now. Uh, And then the White House tweeted it out as they got ready to announce Merrick Garland's nomination. But it is a fact that on occasion, because we might be in the midst of an election, that the Senate will deadlock, much to this gentleman's consternation. Uh, And it did so most recently in 1968, when Johnson, very much a lame duck, going out of office, but was alerted by then Chief Justice Earl Warren in the summer of 1968 that he wished to retire. And because Warren had become a liberal, he wanted Johnson to replace him. So he said, I just want you to know I'm going to step off the bench, just giving you a heads up. And Johnson decided to promote his friend, Associate Justice Abe Fortas, up to the chief chair. The Democrats had a two-thirds majority in the Senate, but a number of those Democrats were Southern Democrats, uh, very, very segregationist-oriented, very, very conservative from the South, And they joined with conservative Republicans to filibuster the nomination to the point where Abe Fortas ultimately just had to step aside. I would point out the difference between 68 and this year, and that is that the Senate did give Abe Fortas a hearing. Uh, So he came before the Senate Judiciary Committee and had a hearing. Unlike this year, when the Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, uh, for whom I've also worked, I should add, um, from the proud... Uh, state of Kentucky and an alum of the University of Louisville, Um, he immediately said upon Justice Scalia's death that there would not be a consideration of President Obama's choice for the Supreme Court because President Obama uh, was in effect a lame duck and it should be left up to the next president and the people uh, to make this decision. Um, That was the first time that a Supreme Court nominee has been denied a hearing. Hearings were not always held, They began to be held in the late 1800s. The actual nominee did not always come to the the actual hearings, and they only began to do so regularly in the 1950s. But I use my language here carefully. No nomination has ever been denied a hearing in the Senate since hearings began uh, after the Civil War. We know that the choice of the president was Merrick Garland. Merrick Garland is the chief judge of the D.C. Circuit, which is a proving ground for Supreme Court justices. Many have... Uh, have actually gone from there. He has a superb background uh, and one that both Democrats and Republicans have praised. So merit is certainly at the top of the list. Leadership is at the top of the list because of his chief judgeship of uh, the D.C. Circuit. Uh, And it is a fact that uh, many Republicans have spoken in his favor, but he's gotten caught up in this gridlock of Washington in this presidential election year. Uh, and this is why there are not hearings being held, that the Senate being run by Republicans is is attempting to block uh, President Obama's nominee and saying that it really is up to the people uh, based on the person they choose to be the next president and that next president should have the opportunity to place the person on the bench. And once again we have a president saying how important it is uh, to have the right person go into that Scalia seat but uh, any person who is chosen by the president will have a tremendous impact on the United States and how we live our lives. So with this uh, vacancy in mind uh, what are the possibilities? What are the different permutations? Uh, it's, It's a complex one. Uh, If, for example, Trump wins and the GOP keeps the Senate majority, I think the lights are out for Merrick Garland. Of course, he's not going to be renominated by Donald Trump. Uh, If Trump wins and the Democrats win a majority in the Senate, uh, what will happen? Maybe we're going to have gridlock again on the opposite side. So you'll have a Republican president, Democratic Senate, and maybe now the die is cast and they're going to say, we're not going to put your person on the bench. If Clinton wins and there's a GOP majority, Uh, would they possibly, in the lame duck session in December, would the Republicans say, well, you know, we are actually better off with Merrick Garland because he is more moderate than somebody Hillary might appoint. She might appoint somebody more liberal than the moderate liberal Merrick Garland. So maybe we should go ahead now and, and say yes to him. If Clinton wins and the Democrats are in the majority, Uh, You would think there'd be smoother sailing for someone that Mrs. Clinton might nominate, although she might stick with Garland. So that's the best scenario, obviously, coming up for him. Uh, We will just have to wait and see. Um, I end with this note and say I am happy to take your questions now. Thank you so much. Yes, we have Althea over here with a question.
1: Yes, you'd mentioned that there's no requirement for nine justices on the court. Is there any requirement that the Senate actually entertain, I mean, anything in the nature of mandamus or anything that would force them to actually consider a nomination?
2: Yeah, great question. Is there anything that would force the Senate to have a hearing? And the answer is no. It's a very simple uh, no. There's nothing in the Constitution. There's nothing in the law. I I, I like that concept of of a writ of mandamus You're a lawyer. I I have heard that possibility, but my sense is that if it were doable, it would have been done. A writ of mandamus is a an order from a court, uh, ordering an institution or a person to uh, carry out their non discretionary duty. Uh, The only problem with that, I think, is from a non lawyer's perspective, uh, the word non discretionary. The very concept that the Constitution does give to the Senate the power to advise and consent, the whole concept of advice and consent is discretionary. So I suspect your writ of mandamus would fail, I'm sorry to say.
0: Early in your presentation, you mentioned Eisenhower and Warren. Was there not a quid pro quo between Warren and Eisenhower that if Warren dropped out of the uh, presidential nomination race that he would get the Supreme Court?
2: yeah that is my understanding too uh, that that there was a political quid pro quo uh, showing you that this is not uh, these are not uh, immaculate conceptions do not lead to uh, members of the Supreme Court, um, but probably all the more galling to Ike uh, that having done this political quid pro quo to get Warren out of the presidential uh, arena. Uh, In a a way, he must have thought that Warren turned on him once on the bench by becoming such a rock-ribbed liberal.
1: Has uh, the seated justices ever expressed an opinion about how the nomination process works and how the hearings have worked, uh, particularly with regard to Justice Bork? Uh,
2: Justice who, please? Bork. Bork. Oh, has the current Chief Justice said anything about that? Uh, Not that I know of. Certainly on on the highest court in the land, I don't think he would uh, step forward to to make a statement about that. But you're very wise to bring up the Robert Bork uh, debacle, certainly for Bork and the the Reagan Reagan administration. In 1987, when Justice Powell announced that he was retiring and stepped off the bench, uh, the Reagan administration thought, hallelujah, the swing seat is open. And so we will put Robert Bork, again, by all accounts, a superbly qualified, meritorious professor of law, jurisprude, philosopher, and at that time, sitting on the DC Circuit. The trouble was, for swing seat politics, I call it, there are more politics injected into the system when it's the swing seat that is at issue, and by the by, the Senate had switched majorities from the Republican majority uh, from 81 to 87. It had switched back to a Democratic majority. And so you might recall that it was a graduate of the University of Virginia Law School, Edward Kennedy, who ran out onto the floor of the Senate and made a, a pretty harsh statement about Judge Robert Bork and his conservatism and how he would take America backwards, particularly in civil rights and liberties. And that got the jump on the Reagan administration's attempt to put Robert Bork in that seat. And they never recovered from it, despite uh, Bork's, in some would say, brilliant performance in front of the Judiciary Committee and yet he had sort of an arrogance about his philosophy and about his approach to judging. Uh, And at the time he had a beard that men didn't particularly wear beards in that era. It made him look rather devilish and the combination of the way he looked and this arrogance did not go over well. But the main problem for him was the Senate had changed hands from the previous year when Rehnquist got through with difficulty, but got through, and Scalia skated through 98 to zero. But I don't know of uh, current Chief Justice John Roberts, certainly from the center chair, saying anything about the Bork hearings. I wouldn't doubt, though, that at the time uh, he was in the Reagan administration in the Justice Department, he could well have said something or even written something. I'm sure you could find it on Google. Yeah. um, Going back to your possibilities in the current election, Yeah. Uh, Assuming Clinton win, uh, there has been some discussion by a couple of Republican senators, I believe, that they would continue to uh, uh, not hold hearings on a vacancy replacement for the duration of the uh, presidency for four years. What's your opinion of the pressure that would be brought uh, on the senators to uh, go ahead and make the appointment and approve the appointment? Uh, or would it lapse into a situation that you've described before where we just go forward with Yeah, uh, I've heard that, and I heard a most intriguing uh, concept about this from a member of the Miller Center board. We just had our fall board meeting, and he's uh, a member of our board, former Senator Slade Gordon of the state of Washington, uh, a lawyer, uh, former attorney general of the state of Washington. Uh, He is in his early 90s now, and he has seen it all. So he was in the Senate through many of these... Uh, wrangles Democrats and Republicans over Supreme Court appointments and we asked him your very question and he said well this is what I think not only empirically will happen but he he had a normative component where he said I think this is what should happen he said from now on I think when we have split government that is White House in one party's hands Congress or particularly the Senate in another if it's a um, if, if there is a in this case a conservative seat that's been vacated by justice scalia he said and if the senate remains republican i don't think a democratic president should be allowed to change that seat to the other philosophy and vice versa so you switch the parties and he'd say the same um, only if he said now he said listen to this he said if it would be mrs clinton and a republican senate and Justice Ginsburg would have to leave. Let's say ill health forced her off or she decided to retire. He said, then it would be a like for alike." So presumably, Mrs. Clinton would be wanting to put a liberal in the Ruth Bader Ginsburg seat. And he said, then the Senate should consider it. But I heard this gentleman here shout out, do your job. Uh, a lot of people feel that way. Do, do what the Constitution says. You don't have to approve. I think what people were most concerned about was no hearings and the unprecedented nature of that, which only uh, solidifies in people's minds uh, the upset over gridlock, so, good point. Final, that's the final, final question thing. I'm being told. Oh, that's it? No more questions? Well, I realize that I'm the only thing standing between you and tailgating. So um, if you all race for the exits, I will understand. But I'm also here to sign books and to thank you and answer questions if you'd like. Thank you so much. Thank you.
1: Thank you. On behalf of...